This is Eric Pincus of Bleacher Report and Sports Business Classroom, and you're listening to the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. BetUS Sportsbook is your ultimate destination for online betting. With sports betting, live betting, racebook, online slots, and online casino. It's available across the U.S. and Canada. Use the code PSP to receive a massive sign-up bonus. Welcome back to the ProSource Podcast. I'm your co-host, it's Nameless Bruce. Thank you for listening as always. I'm joined by the talented Mr. Kobe Naron, otherwise known as Kobe. Kobe, how you doing? I'm good, buddy. You know, the very first NFT I won on the SoRare NBA platform was Emmanuel Quickly, and now he's kicking ass for me. You could say that you've got high IQ. Damn right. Indeed, indeed. And as always, you can find our podcast wherever you get your audio podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review if you haven't already. It really helps us out and helps with our exposure in the great wide world. And we have a, a special guest who's going to talk to us about the, the world of NBA and the round ball. With the trade deadline coming up in the association, who better to talk to than the capologist himself, the expert, the friend of the show? He is coming back, for, I believe, for a fourth time now. So if he comes back for a fifth time, we're getting him a poutine for sure. It is the one and only Eric Pincus. Eric, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. We much appreciate it, as always. Now, before we jump into some of the more pressing topics, you're in Los Angeles, and that is the home of the reigning in-season tournament champions. What were your thoughts on the tournament and, I guess, how the Lakers are going now? Uh, well, I mean, I enjoyed the tournament. I, I thought that, uh, I mean, it needs to be roughed out a little bit, but I thought the, the concept makes a lot of sense. I didn't love the court designs. I thought some of them were fine. Some of them were pretty jarring. Uh, but just the concept, I get. They're trying to build out a product that will entice a, a network to want to invest in them, perhaps a Netflix or an Amazon or something like that. And so I think it gives them something else. We'll see long-term, five years, 10 years down the road, is this something that is really coveted? Is it just a, a minor little distraction? It's too early to say, but for the first experience, I thought it was fun. As far as the Lakers, they've not played particularly well since the tournament. Uh, I think that's been pretty obvious, especially where they lost like 10 or 14. I think they've stabilized a little bit, but had a difficult time with a variety of things, injuries, level of play, uh, just consistency in, in general. Indeed. And with the trade deadline coming up at the beginning of February, what are your thoughts on potential moves that could be made by the Lakers? Do you see them as a, as a buyer? And could they be a reunion with someone like Derek Schroeder, Dennis Schroeder? Sorry, Derek Schroeder is a soccer player. Anyway, could you see them reuniting with Schroeder or other players? I mean, I would say that Dennis is probably on the list, but lower on the list uh, of targets. 
for the Lakers. I think they know what he can do and, and certainly fit in with what they did last year. But that there was also a, a ceiling. He was, uh, he is only so good. He's a good player, but is he a great player? And I don't know if that's, I, in the absence of getting a great player, um, I think Dennis is certainly possible. It's pretty well chronicled at this point that they're looking at DeJounte Murray and that's a possibility. It'll remain a possibility until either the Hawks trade him somewhere else, trade him to the Lakers, or decide not to trade him at all. So that means getting to the deadline and, and no deal. So in the absence of that deal, I'd probably look around a few other places first, but you could certainly, if you want to argue Dennis, at least you know that he knows the system, he knows what they're trying to accomplish on the floor this Team's pretty similar, and, and Dennis was the starter in Toronto and is now uh, backing up quickly. So maybe that's a, a possibility. Indeed. Now, speaking of uh, Toronto, a wise person uh, wrote about the potential of Pascal Siakam being traded to the Pacers on January 16th. By the way, make sure you read all of Eric's work at Bleacher Report. Uh, on January 17th, Siakam was obviously traded to the Pacers, so kudos for that foresight. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, Bleach Report likes when I sort of construct theoretical trades of like what might happen, and I do my best to base it on real-world intel and uh, some of it being conversations and some of it just being maybe looking through the math, uh, looking through, uh, for example, Kira Lewis was traded from the Pelicans, that was very predictable because they needed to get out of the tax. And do they need to? Well, I mean, that's subjective, but it was clear that they would. So sometimes these things can be mapped out pretty clearly. My, my article, I think, said it, it, it was Bruce Brown, but I think it, it roped in the, the Thunder as the third team to take on Brown. So it wasn't quite exactly it, but um, I, I, it's almost impossible to actually hit on the exact thing when you're just sort of tying concepts together, but I think I hit on a pretty big one. I think also the big difference is that uh, at the time, uh, I don't think the, when I wrote that story, I don't think the Raptors would have made that move without uh, Jairus Walker, uh, but ultimately the Pacers made it clear, like, we're just not doing that. So uh, once they got past that, then I think it just became, okay, we'll do this. And so I had two firsts, I think, uh, and then ended up being three firsts and no Walker. So pretty darn close. I'll, I'll take the kudos, but uh, it was a fun one to write. Absolutely. And just quickly before I throw it to Kobe, can you see any other moves from the Raptors? Perhaps trading for a big man or something like that? Maybe moving on to some of those firsts? Well, I, I think the Raptors are clearly open to change. This has been a real stretch of massive change the last year or two, you know, losing Fred, losing Lowry, and now losing Siakam, the, you know, the heart of that group outside of Kauai uh, from the team that won. But uh, you can certainly argue that uh, if they don't see eye to eye with Gary Trent Jr. on uh, a way forward, as far as financially, if they're not on the same page, then you could see Certainly him being someone who shipped out, that could be a, a game of, in a sense, chicken to an extent with the Raptors where maybe they want to keep him and maybe they feel like they can at a lower price and that he's, you know, outpricing himself to them right now. But when the time comes, they all have the best offer and maybe they believe that. But that's a pretty big risk if you're being offered something now for him. So I don't know what that market looks like yet, but we'll have to wait and see. I've heard his name mentioned a few times. 
And then also, uh, of course, I don't think Bruce Brown is a fixture here. His option next year is 23 million. And I don't, I don't see why the Raptors would want that on their books. I mean, we could certainly argue it, but if you're going to let him go, then you might as well see if there's a way to get something for him now. Uh, if you're not sure that you're going to keep him at that price next year. So of course they, they, they may also behind the scenes be able to say, okay, we'll opt you out, but then we're going to re-sign you at this figure. And if they're already negotiating that figure, that's certainly a possibility. These sort of things sort of, uh, even though they're not technically legal, uh, happen all the time in terms of future planning for teams. Indeed. I've got some, some more, uh, thoughts on future planning, but yeah, Eric is, is the Siakam trade possibly the biggest trade we're going to see ahead of the trade deadline? I mean, it's it's hard to say. We're, we're not going to know until we know, obviously, trade season already. And so, uh, I mean, we've, it's a year where we've seen Damian Miller traded. So Siakam may not be the biggest trade of the year, but uh, in terms of, like, deadline deals, he's certainly – he was the number one name on the list, and maybe number two right now is DeJounte Murray, who's now, I guess, number one, uh, because uh, Siakam's off. So it, it depends on on how things go. I would say that, like, last year, it, there were a lot of questions around the league of, like, maybe it'd be a dull deadline, maybe there wouldn't be a lot of movement. Uh, so many teams were still in the tournament, the, the in, not the in-season, but the play-in tournament, in the range of play-in, so maybe they were, there weren't going to be enough sellers, and then as we got right to the deadline, it got really busy. So uh, it's possible that because it's been busier now that maybe we have less action at the deadline, or maybe we just have a ton of action. I, I know that the league and the union, the MBPA, who reached the, the collective bargaining agreement in, well, in, in April, but uh, started it this July, that there was in the new rules, what I would say an emphasis on trades, an emphasis on extensions, more so than free agency. So uh, I could see that shift in making trade rules looser. That could lead to more, uh, just more trades. And I think that's probably why we've seen more this year already, even with the play-in tournament. Uh, we just, it's been pretty busy when it comes to trades. Do you see him as a good fit in Indiana or no? Uh, Siakam? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, they they haven't had Halliburton fully healthy, um, but I, I really like the idea of what Siakam can give them as a, a big defensive, aggressive wing who can score. Uh, obviously, he's not not like a pure shooter, so you know, that that's not ideal or perfect. But at the same time, uh, perfection rarely exists, and so your team like the the Pacers that need some toughness, that need some aggression uh, at those big positions. You know, you've got Miles Turner and Siakam is a pretty daunting duo. Like they should be able to do a lot together, uh, cover a lot of ground. I don't think, you know, Turner's a great shot blocker, but he's not necessarily the fastest. Uh, whereas uh, Siakam is very mobile because you know, he's he's not traditionally like a big, but he plays power forward. He's a modern era power forward, but like mm -hmm. historically, he's more of a small forward. So he's more of a wing uh, historically. So yeah, I like it. I like it. Uh, and then Halliburton's just so good that that team, you know, you know, he'll, he'll get the best out of everybody he has. It's pretty impressive. Where do you rank them in the East? That's a good question. Um, well, you know, obviously a top right now, you have the Celtics with the best record. And I, I wonder 
Doc Rivers coaching the Bucks is a double-edged sword. I think he's a very good coach for regular season, and where he tends to stumble is in the playoffs. So you would probably rank the Bucks among the best. But when it comes to like, are we are we saying contender? Uh, are we talking about seeding? In the case of the Pacers, I think they can grow and, and catch once they're healthy. Uh, the Heat and the Knicks and Cleveland, they're all within the range. And, you know, Cleveland is a little bit far. And New York, they're about three behind. Uh, but they should be able to outpace everybody else. So, you know, the goal if you're the Pacers is uh, six. That's the goal for everybody uh, in each conference because then you avoid the playing altogether. Uh, so you want to be six or higher. And, I, I, you know, the big question for – Pacers, they have one of the best quarterbacks in the league, you know, obviously uh, in Halliburton, one of the great point guards. If he's not right and if he's missing games because of this hamstring, then no, I mean, they're just an average team at best. But with Halliburton healthy, then this team should be able to at least hold on to seven and, and I think theoretically climb up to at least six. Do you think they're done as far as moves? As far as the Pacers? You know, I, I don't know that there's much else that they need to do um, because you have, when healthy, you have three guards uh, with Nemhard and and, uh, and McConnell at the point. They've got plenty of wings uh, that, from Shooter and Buddy to Neesmith, uh, who's a tough defender. They've got too many, probably too many forwards, power forward big types like uh, Jalen Smith and... Um, Gosh, the other gentleman, uh, it's Jalen Smith and Isaiah, which I want to say Stewart. It's Jackson. Okay, Stewart. I was I, I get caught up between the two yeah. Isaiahs. It's Isaiah Jackson is the one in Vienna. Uh, and so I, I could, like, I could see in theory a thinning out where it's maybe getting one better player for the rotation and thinning out maybe one of the wings. I mean, I don't know where they are on Buddy in terms of long-term money. Uh, but also he's a good shooter and, and a team like this needs the shooting. So, uh, yeah, it's, I could definitely see some, I don't know if Toppin is a, a fixture long-term again, it's going to depend on where they are with money, but I don't think he hurts coming off the bench. So, uh, I don't think the Pacers need to make a move, but I think they have some flexibility that if something came up that they can certainly, uh, thin out their rotation a little bit and maybe add one better player for two or three. Do you know how they look cap wise going into the next season? Oh, I mean they're they're pretty clean. Uh, the main thing is is what is Siakam going to get right? So without Siakam, you've got about twenty for Turner. Uh, the big money kicks in for Halliburton, so he jumps from about six million to about thirty five. But they don't have a ton else. It's just really what are you paying Siakam? And and I'm sure that there's an idea of what it's going to take. And I would I mean. It's certainly not legal for the two sides to negotiate, but I'm sure that they've communicated some level of understanding, <laughs> at least ballpark. You know what I mean? Because you wouldn't yeah. make that move yeah. <laughs> unless you had that. So if you say that Siakam is back at, say, 35, maybe more, but let's say 35, he maybe he wants max. It still puts them in a position where they're, they may not have cap room in the end, but they don't look like a team that's dealing with some of the other issues other teams have to deal with, like... Uh, hard caps and aprons and taxes and things like that. They're, they should be in a good shape, good position, even with Siakam back. Uh, some of that depends on what they pay Buddy or if they pay Buddy, because that money comes off. He's about $20 million. Okay, no, fair enough. Yeah, Eric, you touched on 
hard caps and aprons. We are moving into possibly one of the most transformative uh, off-seasons in the last few years with the new CBA kicking in with regard to flexibility and what teams can and can't do. Masai Ujiri touched on it himself after trading Pascal Siakam. He mentioned that there was a desire to be a little bit more flexible and that some teams are going to be restricted. Now, one team that comes to mind is the Clippers. The Clippers has spent a lot of money on salary in previous years. As I understand it, with, under the new CBA, sorry, the current CBA, teams above the second apron cannot use mid-level exceptions. What does this look like for the, the big end of town this summer? What, what can they do? Uh, well, I mean, the rules are really more restrictive when it comes to getting someone else's player. It's not restrictive when it comes to keeping your own. And that's in part why the team has been so aggressive to trade into what they might be, what might be the best Clippers team we've ever seen. Maybe not. We don't know. But it's certainly arguable that this is their year. We won't know that for some time. But they look really good. And I think the idea here is that the MBPA, that's the union, they fight and will always fight to make sure that they have the that players have the rights to re-sign with their teams. The bird rights is what we call them, and that those won't be restricted. So those hard caps, those aprons, are more about. Let's say the Clippers want to go sign Tyrese Maxey, they can't do that. They're not. They, all they have, as you mentioned, is the minimum. So they're not even in the conversation. Whereas you know, look at some other teams, whatever, whoever is Orlando, Charlotte, whoever ends up with money next year. They could make an offer sheet to Tyrese Maxey that the Sixers uh, would have to co- contemplate and likely match. Point being is the Cl- Clippers are not going to be in those conversations at all. But if they can, they've already worked out a deal to keep Kawhi. If they work out a deal to keep Paul George, and if they, I would imagine, have already on some level worked out a deal with James Harden before they went and traded for him, then you're just steering into that skid and and being willing to pay whatever penalties that might be now or in the future, frozen draft picks, limited spending power. But if you're keeping Paul, you're keeping Kawhi, you're keeping Norm Powell, you're keeping Zubats, Terrence Mann, and I, did I leave out one hard and whatever. If I've left out, uh, yeah, if I left out someone, I left out someone. But if those are your top six or seven guys, plus probably keep Plumley, maybe even keep, um, well, it depends on, on uh, the market for Daniel Tice, but, you know, they've got, the makings of something that, in theory, could last some years. The big question has always been the health of Paul George, health of Kawhi, uh, because neither of them have been consistently healthy at the same time or separately. It just seems like like last year both were hurt. Or, I don't know. It's just a blur at this point. Like I guess, you know, I I, I can't remember yeah who was hurt what year, but every year someone is hurt between mm-hmm. the two. Um, but they don't have that limit in flexibility until really after this trade deadline. So they have PJ Tucker at about 11 million, 11 million, 11 and a half next year. I don't know if any team wants that on the books. Clippers don't have a lot in terms of assets. They do have a first, uh, they do have some seconds. So in theory, they could generate enough where if a team doesn't mind taking on that extra year of PJ Tucker, then they might be able to get off of him and maybe anyone from Bones Highland to I guess Amir Coffee or BJ Boston, some of these just younger, cheaper players, but if you add them up, 
Uh, remember, the Clippers, as a team above these aprons, the second apron, they can only take in 110% right now of what they send out. But if you look at P.J. Tucker at 11, if you say like Bones Highland at two and a half, almost 13, you know, you could start to get up to something. You might not be able to get someone making crazy money, but they do have, I think, the potential for one move. The problem is, is that after this season, really the regular season, and then so it's the trade deadline, they can't execute a trade above 110%. They can only take in equal or less. So if, if P.J. Tucker, for instance, opted in, then they could trade for up to 11 and a half, but they'll even have issues. They won't be able to combine a PJ Tucker and a Bones Highland in the future. So there are all these restrictions that are coming. And I think the Clippers probably look to act on that now before they come in, try to get in as much salary as possible, which seems counterintuitive with these rules, but try to get in as much salary as possible so that later when they trade, because they could always take in equal or less, they have more, offer and trade although their picks will be pretty decimated so very curious i think a lot of teams around the league are very curious to see how the clippers the warriors the celtics uh, if bucks a few other teams that are in that higher echelon the suns how they handle these sort of financial restrictions or hindrances indeed yes the the deterring measures now on the flip side we've seen in the past teams like Oklahoma City, you could even look at the the Charlotte Hornets this week. They were willing to take on Kyle Lowry's contract with a, a first-round pick as compensation for doing so. Are we going to see more moves like that in the future where caps, um, teams that are hamstrung by the cap trade with teams that are, have space and are willing to give up picks towards that? Sure. I mean, I, I don't think that's a new concept. I think that's been going on for some time. I mean, that's kind of business as usual. The, the idea is, is that you have teams in the different point in their cycles of success, right? So for instance, the Spurs, their goal was to be as awful as possible to get Victor Weminyama. And then eventually a year or two or three into this process, start to add pieces around him. And so they were willing to take on junky contracts, players that were no longer desired by their teams for, for picks. That's how the, the Thunder have been operating. That's how other teams across the board in that rebuild operate. They, they use cap room, they use trade exceptions to take on other players' contracts. And there, I mean, even before the modern era, there was, you know, expiring contracts held a lot of value. Now we have some contracts that are only partially guaranteed and there's some value there. Uh, there's there's so many rules and and a lot of them have been loosened in tr in the trade world. Uh, it's easier to make trades, at least for teams that are below those aprons. So the idea is that we should see more of the same. But I think we have another, you know, just another concept to consider is that the teams that are making moves now in the past, we would just look and say, are you going to be in the tax? And how badly? Because sometimes that would be okay. Like Pelicans, for instance, they went into the tax briefly, but they were going to always get out, which they did. But the point is, is that sometimes a team will temporarily go into these higher numbers. But now when we have these aprons, first or second, they may not be willing to do that in a trade now if it may, means that over the summer, that they'll be hard capped or they'll be limited and they won't have any way to improve. So in the in the past, you used to look to the, fo to the future 
but at the same time, you can only you, you I guess there was more flexibility. Now I think teams are a little more scared or hesitant to take on investment that might hurt their flexibility in the summer. Indeed. Now, one of the toughest places to conduct a trade is the world of fantasy, fantasy basketball. Are you, are you playing fantasy this season, Eric? I, I am as best I can. My uh, team is pretty injured most of the year, but uh, trying to trying to stay competitive. Fair enough. Are there some names that have popped up in this month or maybe around the deadline that we should be looking out for for the rest of the season? Oh, from a fantasy perspective? So um, I haven't put a lot of thought into it other than usually you want to see the teams that are tanking, that are going to be terrible and are happy to be terrible. That's something where they may... Uh, the teams that are, uh, I lost my train of thought. The teams that are going to be terrible are going to trade some good player and they're going to play somebody who's at the end of the bench who has talent and that player might get ridiculous minutes. And those may be minutes that they'll never get on any level in the NBA in the future. And it was just a moment in time. That's on a fantasy team where you want to, for the home stretch of the season, you want to catch those guys on those teams that are going to benefit from someone being traded. So if you're looking at the Wizards and they trade Tyus Jones or DeLon Wright or both, who's going to pick up the point guard minutes there? Like if Lowry doesn't play and Rogier is out, who on the Hornets is going to benefit from that? You just go team by team and look at the bottom of the of the like the Grizzlies and whatnot. Like if they're everyone's hurt, if they trade Kennard, who will get those minutes? And so that's you know it's I could say here the sexy name like if you say De, you know Dejounte's traded and and maybe D'Angelo Russell ends up on the Wizards, maybe you could say oh go get D'Angelo Russell. But if you're in a, a competitive league, maybe Russell's already taken. So me saying go look at a player who's already on another team isn't going to help you much. But from the fantasy perspective of, I guess Taylor Horton Tucker was an, an idea last year where he, he he played regular minutes, but at a certain point the team shifted and Mike Conley went out and THT got a lot more time. So his numbers probably end of the season were of a A minus B plus player, whereas maybe on career he'll be a C plus or a C player. You see what I'm saying? There might be a little yeah. bit of a jump. So yeah. it's more about being flexible in that. Interesting. Now, looking at the, the Hornets, who they they had an unexpected winning against Minnesota and decided, nope, we don't like that, so we're going to trade away Terry Rogier. Does that mean, would you say Kelly Oubre is due for an upshot, fantasy-wise? Uh, I mean, you could argue it. I mean, like, so in the case of Philadelphia, you said Oubre, right? Mm. So in the case of Oubre... He's first of all, he started out really well in fantasy. I gotta say, he's actually on my team, and then he had that injury, and he hasn't quite been the same. But I think some of that uh, is a little bit more just like they were sort of figuring out who they were, and they just needed someone to score. And I think they have a better sense of what they want to do and how they want to operate. So I think that one, that Ubre was playing over his head a little bit, and then two, I think the team wasn't quite established yet. So. But yeah, I mean, there's like the Rozier thing. I like the fit in in Miami, but like from a fantasy perspective, you know, probably dips because he had more free reign to do whatever the heck he wanted to do because the 
Hornets were so bad and needed so much help, and especially with Lamelo, who's been hurt a lot this year, Rozier's value maybe dips. And then Lowry, I don't, I think he only had fringe value anyway. But I'm curious to see where the Sixers go uh, in terms of their depth, and did they make a move now, or are they waiting until the summer? All signs point to them waiting for the summer to uh, make a bigger move, maybe a smaller move could come now. But again, like if you're trying to trade for Kelly Oubre, you're trading for someone you don't have the rights to. So he's a minimum player. So you, the most you could pay him is 120% of the minimum next year. So that's probably not enough. Uh, it's debatable. But you don't have, you, you have non-bird rights, which isn't enough to really pay him above, or at least what he would like. So there's no real benefit in trading for a guy that, that inexpensive. Fair enough. Now, the the Raptors traded for someone last year, and they gave him a new contract. His in Jakob Pertl. Is there a, a market for him this com- this coming trade deadline? I mean, I had heard that it's certainly conceivable that Toronto may go in a different direction with Pertl, but I don't. I mean, they just traded for him, and then they just paid him. So I think, in my opinion, I don't know for sure that they want to get a look at how it all fits together and what can they get for Bruce Brown if there is something to get. I don't know if they would move Dennis Schroeder or not. I mean, I'm sure in the right situation. They have some expirings in Thaddeus Young and Otto Porter, so that flexibility is there. But I don't know how aggressive they are to improve just unless there's something valuable coming back. So they would have to, in my opinion, be really impressed with an offer for Pirtle, as opposed to being like with Brown, it's just the best offer might be the one that they take. Or I mentioned Trent earlier, any of these other players, but with Pirtle, in theory, you, you, because he's on a longer term deal, they have some time to sort of weigh what they want to be. I mean, he does give them a real, a real presence as far as size. Um, he's what he is. He's limited in some ways, just as all players are. So, uh, but I don't know if you, you certainly don't pay to get rid of him. You know what I mean? You don't, you're not going to be like dumping him and, and paying some team to get him off your books. I don't think if you're Toronto, but in the right cir- circumstance, I think they would move him, but I just, it would have to be the exact right situation. For sure. And just staying with, with big men, not necessarily Toronto, but it, do you think there's a market for Nick Claxton in Brooklyn? Do you think a team could snatch him away from the nets before the deadline? That's a tough one. The main issue with Claxton is that he will be an unrestricted free agent and he is not extension eligible because you can't extend a player who signed a two-year deal. I would have liked to have seen the, the Nets given him another year so that he would have, you know, at the time, so that he would have been extension eligible so that we wouldn't be facing this. And, you know, obviously what he wants in free agency, I've heard is in the 20s. And so if you're trading for him, you're going to have to uh, basically pre-negotiate and come up with the number that he's going to be happy with. Uh, I think for the Nets, the way Dayron Sharp has been developing, where they're going, I don't know if they want to early commit to a lot of money, given that they have a lot in Simmons that's going to come off soon, but they have another year at about $40 million. They have Cam Johnson and Bridges, who are their mainstays. I don't think they're married to Dorian Finney-Smith, but you start adding those numbers together and another 20-something commitment to Claxton starts to narrow what they can be, at least until Simmons is off their books. So uh, I I think a lot of teams are curious and are interested 
in Claxton because of just that uncertainty that maybe the Nets aren't willing to pay him what he wants. And so if you can get him, it's a question of, one, are you better off waiting and just signing him in free agency? Or two, is there a price that makes enough sense where you can get him and prearrange what would be an illegal agreement, but an agreement nonetheless on what that money would be the next year? So um, I think he's a possibility to move. He's not high on my list as far as likely. So, you know, like I was saying, Kira Lewis was likely. That was like a given. But some play, and Siakam was pretty much a given. There are a few other players, you know, maybe Tyus Jones or uh, Kennard uh, with Memphis that are just financial situations. Looking at them, it's like, yeah, like the Wizards are going to lose Tyus Jones. He's not going to stick around. And if a team wants him, then you might as well profit. And they want picks and whatnot. I don't know how much you get for Tyus Jones uh, as an expiring, but maybe you get either a late first in this draft or some seconds in future drafts. Uh, and then similar to Kennard, like the, the Grizzlies have too much invested for next year, probably going to have to opt him out. So if you're going to opt him out, you might as well trade him and profit, especially when their team is not going to the playoffs this year. So similarly, you look at all, all these other teams and that's where you know, Claxton or whatnot, you're looking at these sort of future considerations. Who, who are you likely to get and who's likely to be dealt? And Claxton's numbers suggest that, yeah, I could see a path where they're like, yeah, we're not going to pay that 20, whatever he wants. Let's trade him now so we don't lose him later. Uh, then the last point on that is that, in theory, the Nets may want to sign and trade him and would save the rights to to do that then. But you run the risk, since he's not restricted, that he just leaves and you lose him for nothing, uh, similar to how the Raptors lost Fred Van Vliet. You, you don't necessarily want to take that approach unless – you're confident in, in what what you can get back. Hundred percent, hundred percent. People are still talking about that Fred Van Vliet departure. <laughs> it is it is a bone of contention in the city. Uh, the the way that was handled. Nevertheless, Eric, you handle your business as always, and in addition to writing for Bleacher Report, you I believe you recently took the future agents of the league through their paces for exams. You want to tell our audience about that and some of the work that you do outside of writing? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I work for Sports Business Classroom, uh, which is an ed educational program that uh, our main uh, event is in Las Vegas around Summer League, where we get a couple hundred, was, I don't know, how many, I forget how many it was. It was a ton of, over a hundred students this last year. It'll be probably about 130 or so, or 140 this year. We'll see. I don't know what our capacity is. And we take them through a lot of uh, educational job seeking type preparation. How do you get a job in the NBA world, be it with a team or on the agent side or with a shoe company or in broadcast, et cetera, et cetera. So we try to help people. We have a lot of success getting people jobs, which is really a joy. Uh, but then in addition to that, I do with SBC, we've been working with the MBPA to provide education on the on the CBA, the rules, the collective bargaining agreement for prospective agents. They took the test uh, about a week ago uh, and they'll find out, I guess in about a week, their results. So uh, yeah, we had a ton of students. I was tutoring plenty privately. And then we were also doing, I was working with Bobby Marks. We were working on webinars together, trying to get them ready for that test. So hopefully all of the ones that I helped pass, I don't know how many will, but we'll certainly wait. I. I I, uh, I haven't taken the test myself because I'm, I'm not an agent, but I know a lot about it. I know a lot about the CBA, and I'm 
happy to try to help. Uh, and I also do a lot of consulting with agents once they are uh, certified or just agents who've been around a long time who I have a relationship with, try to provide a little bit of counsel uh, as best possible and strategy and things like that. Indeed. Yes, you do know a lot about the CVA and you know a lot about the CAP. You are the capologist. You are the, you're the main man. Tell us, where can we find your work on social media? Uh, of course, I'm on uh, Twitter or X at Eric Pincus, E-R-I-C-P-I-N-C-U-S. That's probably the best way to reach me. I'm on all the other platforms as well, but that's usually where I, I do my communication still. Uh, and of course, you can find me on Bleacher Report and at Sports Business Classroom. That's at Sports Biz, B-I-Z, class on Twitter. Uh, but you can just find it on my handle on Twitter as well. Fantastic. Now, Eric, I'm pretty sure last time you mentioned you weren't a big predictions guy, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Give us a bold prediction for the rest of the NBA season. A bold prediction for the NBA season in terms of the trade deadline or, or in terms of uh, what who, you who like? does what? In the, anything I like? Uh, well, let's see here. Uh, I don't think that the Bucks win a title with Doc Rivers, no offense. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that gets in there. I wouldn't be shocked if we ended up with like a Boston-Miami Eastern Conference Finals, because as much as it's easy to just say, like, the Heat aren't good enough, they just always seem to be good enough. Uh, let's see. I don't think the Wolves get to the Conference Finals. I don't think the Thunder get to the Conference Finals. I think they're too young. I really like them. So the Nuggets, I see in the Conference Finals. And then it's probably either the Clippers or, you know, I, I, I'll at least say the Lakers, maybe if they make a move, uh, can get back up to those heights. But I, I don't know if the Suns are, but they'd be the third team or the late, I guess Lakers and Suns would be the third team in my mind, but it's probably Nuggets Clippers right now. So those are my predictions for the Conference Finals. That work? That works for me. Kobe? Yeah, bang on. Bang on. I like it. Thanks for your time, Eric. Pleasure having you on. Sounds good. Appreciate you, gentlemen. Good talking to you again, buddy. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcasters experience, where no sport is left behind.